why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and he holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be warned. Be wise, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, because His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That's Psalm 2. A wonderful, glorious psalm that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I want us to look at Psalm 2 this morning. So take your Bible and turn there. Beloved, we live in dark times. And the church of Jesus Christ has been through dark times before. It has come through victorious as it always has and always will. So there's a sense in which this is nothing new. But on the other hand, I think we're seeing things in our country and in our world that are unprecedented for many of us. And it's not just darkness and evil that we see around us. We've all seen that around us for all the days of our lives. But what we need to realize is that we're not just seeing miscellaneous, unconnected acts of wickedness. There is a war that is raging all around us. Satan and his minions, although they are defeated, still continue to fight. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, is it? But it's against the powers and the principalities, against authorities, against cosmic powers, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so there's a very simple and important truth that we need to remember. It's a truth that I think deep down we don't want to face. 
we don't like to face. And it's this truth. Understand this, Christian. There's no mincing words about it. The world hates you. It absolutely hates you. It detests you. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because Jesus says in John 15, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So it's not so much that the world hates you, but it hates you because you claim to follow Christ. That is the object of their hatred. And because you are one of his, they hate you. Jesus says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. The world hates us because it hates Jesus Christ. And this hatred in the past has been concealed in many ways. It's operated in the back rooms of media and corporations. Now, however, it is more open. It's more public. And yes, sadly, more violent. When we come to Psalm 2, what I hope to do this morning is, is something that I like to do when I'm acting like a child. I bought this flashlight and this flashlight is one of those lights that will shoot a beam across the woods as far as the eye can see. Sometimes I'll take it outside and I'll, I'll kind of you know, use it and then I'll start playing with it. I'll put it on the, the highest power setting and then I'll just shoot it up in the sky into the darkness to see how far the light will go. It's powerful. You could shine it from my driveway all the way down here to the stop sign. I mean, it's insane. It's a lot of fun. I have a lot of, uh, you, you need to pray for me because there's a lot of temptations when you're playing with a thing like that. But what I want to do this morning is to look at the darkness, look at the evil, and shine this, this amazingly brilliant light of Psalm 2. Frederick Nietzsche, the philosopher, once said, Battle not with monsters, lest you become a monster. And if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. Well, number one, we don't necessarily want to get our theology from Nietzsche. If you know anything about him, he's not a Christian or a believer. But what we want to do is take what Nietzsche says and stare into the abyss and speak to it and let it know exactly what God's word says to it. And so this morning, we want to look into the darkness. We want to look at, at evil in the face with square shoulders. And we want to say, with a heart full of faith, based on Psalm 2, Christ is King. Jesus Christ is not afraid of you. We see so much around us, but the comfort of God's Word is that this is not the first time that the world has behaved like this. When we look at Psalm 2, we see that God not only sees the wickedness and the evil, but He Himself also responds to it, doing the same thing that we hope to do this morning. So, I want us to look at Psalm 2 and what God has to say about Jesus Christ the King and what it means for the darkness and the rebellion that we see around us. So this morning, if you remember nothing else, what we want to walk away here, walk away from here remembering is this. Although there are those who despise God's king, Christ will rule all and we are called to rest in him. Let me say that again. Although there are those who despise God's king, 
Christ will rule all, and we are called to rest in Him. When we look at the first stanza, verses 1 through 3, we see that there are those who despise God's rule. And the psalm actually begins with a question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why? It indicates a confusion. Why do they rage? What's the point? Why would the psalmist ask a question like that? He doesn't understand, and the reason he doesn't understand is because of the rest of the psalm. Why are they so arrogant? Why are they so rebellious and so desirous to strive against the kingdom of God? To the psalmist, it makes no sense. But then again, sin hardly ever does. Notice how the activity is described. It's not just apathy to God. It says that they plot, they rage, and they plot. They cannot stand that there is a God in heaven. And they cannot stand that He rules the cosmos. But don't miss those last two words in verse 1. Why do they rage and plot in vain? The psalmist's faith is not shaken. He knows who the king is. And he knows who has set the king And so he wonders out loud, why do they do all this in vain? It's utterly pointless. There's no merit or possibility of success, but they still do it. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves. Look at that language. They set themselves. They, They dig in their heels. They get in a ready position. And the rulers conspire, they take counsel together, they meet in their rooms and they discuss and they chatter and they they murmur. How How can we get out of this? How can we overthrow him? How can we get God off his throne? And what end do they seek to accomplish? Look at verse 3. They take a stand. I'm sorry, at the end of verse 2, they take a stand. They take counsel together, not for the Lord, but what? Against the Lord and against his anointed. That word anointed is the word Messiah. They take their stand. They are antagonistic to God and His King that He has anointed. What do they want to do? Look at verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart. This is an image of of breaking off the shackles. They They want to be free from God's kingdom. They don't want to be under His rule. It says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cores from us. They look at the kingship of God and His Messiah as bonds and fetters, as restrictive, as as too too restrictive and and, and too much hampering on on what it is they want to do. And do we not see the same thing today? There's no arguing that we are living in days of rebellion, days of darkness, Rebellion against God's word, rebellion against God's created natural order, rebellion against God's kingship. But what we're seeing is not just rebellion. Understand, they despise God's rule. It's not just that they, they, it's not just that they don't like one little line of doctrine that we have. They hate the one who gave the doctrine. And so what was true in Psalm 2 was written is true today. But what should our response be? Well, what is the Lord's response? Is he moved? Is he dethroned? Does he get up and start pacing the floor? Does he run because he's afraid? 
Of course not. That's why the psalmist says, why? Why do they rage? Why do they plot in vain? This is not a why of desperation when something bad happens. It's like, why, God, why did you do that? No, this is like when somebody does something, you go, why do they do that? That makes no sense. No, when we come to verse 4, we see not only are there those who despise God's rule, but even though they do, in verses 4 through 6, we see that the king still reigns. Not only is he not moved, what does verse 3 say? I'm sorry, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Their plotting and their scheming is comical. It's funny. It says he laughs and then it holds them in derision. That, that language of derision means that he looks at them and he laughs in a degrading or in a deriding way. Like when somebody does something completely and totally foolish and you laugh at them and go, Can you believe this guy? Look, look, look at what he's doing. The Lord is laughing at their plans. He not only laughs, but he derides them. Why? Well, think about it. Is it not the height of foolishness to think that this creature of the dust can somehow overthrow the eternal God who existed before time began, has always existed, and will always exist in and of himself without any need of anything from anybody? Is it not peak pride to think that this creature can dethrone the Creator? Is it not sheer stupidity to think that this is even possible? But he laughs. And I think for many in the world today, in their rebellion, in their, their despising of God's kingdom, it's all fun and games because they think, well, where is God? God is, if God was obviously displeased with what I'm doing, wouldn't he do something about it? But then notice what verse 5 says. The nations rage, they murmur, they conspire, they talk, 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 talk. But then in verse 5, the Lord talks. That's when everybody else is quiet. Oh, they, they say, let us burst their bonds. But notice the, the, the parallel here. They speak, but then... Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in their fury, saying, in his fury, excuse me, saying. So, so they're chattering, but as soon as God speaks, they're shaking in their boots, they're wetting their pants, and they're running scared. The Lord speaks in his wrath, and he terrifies them. They think in their pride, that there's no need to fear God. They can rebel all they want with no consequences. But when He speaks, all talk of rebellion ceases. All the darkness and all the evil we see around us today, it thinks that it's assaulting God or that it's hurting God because God seems silent. But when He speaks, they cower in fear. And what's His response? In verse 6, what does he say? As for me, so here's God's answer to their rebellion against him and his king. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, he says, I have put my king where I want him and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. 
Rage all you want. Conspire all you want. I have set him on my hill. And so the unstated implication is really there's nothing that they can do about it. Try as they might. Proverbs 21 verse 30 comes to mind. It says, no wisdom, no understanding, and no counsel will prevail against the Lord. But here, we cannot read Zion, my holy hill, as merely a physical location. It is. But it is also representative of a spiritual reality. Paul uses this analogy of this metaphor of the difference between Sinai and Zion. Zion is an earthly place, but it also represents a heavenly place. And so God is not just saying that he has set his king on a physical throne, but he has set his king on a spiritual throne, a heavenly throne. He has set there and he rules from heaven. So there may be those who despise the king and God, but the king still reigns. And not only does he reign, but one day he will rule over all. Because this is what we see in verses 7 through 9. They rage, but he reigns, and one day he will reign over all. In verse 7, what you have is this king, this anointed one, who is now speaking. The, the, per, the point of view shifts to the king, the anointed one. He says, I will tell of the decree. I was set. Let me tell you what God said to me. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So in speaking to the king, he says that he is a son. Today I have begotten you. Now, first of all, let, let's, let's just... Who is this king? If it's not obvious by this phrase, you are my son, let's just pause for a moment. Let's see what the scriptures say. He says, you are my son, verse 7. That reflects language from David and his covenant. But Paul actually quotes this verse in Acts 13.33. If you want to go back and look at it. Acts 13.33. He says, God has fulfilled his promise to his people by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. So for Paul, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. What about in verse 8 where it says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Well, this is echoed in Revelation chapter 5. It says in verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for every tribe, language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So according to Revelation, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. Then it says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You go just a little ways over to Revelation 19, verse 11. John says, I saw the heaven open and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. 
He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. And then what does it say? He will rule them with an iron rod. Who is this Messiah? Who is this son that is going to come and rule the nations, receive them as his inheritance? Who is this king? The New Testament says it's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the king of Psalm 2. So every line in verses 7 through 9 points to him as the fulfillment of the psalm. So it's not just that the nations rage against some, mis- some unknown anointed Messiah. There's a new dynamic. When we read this in the whole of Scripture, it's rebellion against Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. It's a rebellion against His kingdom. Why is it? I mean, that's why Jesus says in the first sermon he preaches in Matthew, in Matthew 4, 17, Repent, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, has come near. So Christ is the king. He will one day rule over all. Look at verse 8. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the earth your possession. I will give you the ends of the earth. He will one day rule over everything. But then also notice the language of verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You've always heard this quote probably in movies where somebody, they're in a a tense dialogue and somebody says something and they say, are you threatening me? And they'll say, no, I'm not threatening you. It's a promise. That's exactly what we find. Listen You rulers, you rebellious kings, when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back as the tame lamb. He's coming back as a roaring lion. He's coming back on a white horse. He's coming back and he will conquer the nations with a rod of iron and dash you into pieces like a clay pot. In other words, I love the way one writer put it. What we see in Psalm 2 is that evil has an expiration date. One day, this king will rule over all. So what is the right response? In verses 10 through 12, if rebellion is so obviously foolish, what is the right response? It's not to fight. It's not to run. It's not to plot and conspire. Remember what our main idea is. We are called to what? Rest in Him. So in verses 10 through 12, rest, not resistance, is our hope. So the psalm starts with the rulers and the kings. But now it addresses them again. It says, so now or now therefore, O kings, be warned, O rulers. So here's the conclusion. Now, therefore, what are you to do with this? Now what? So what? What should they do? He says, be wise and be warned. You've been notified, O rebels. What should they do? 
they should be wise and be warned. And then there's three things that the psalm gives. It says, first of all, that you adopt the right view of him. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Instead of rebelling, serve. In some places, this exact word for serve can be translated as worship. Serve, worship the Lord with fear. Have a right view. You did not fear him because you were rebelling against him. But now when you see him as he is, there is a healthy fear, a respect. And then it says, and rejoice with trembling. So you are to adopt the right view of him. But then not only adopt the right view of him, you respond to this new view. Notice it doesn't just say serve the Lord and rejoice. But what? Kiss the son. Kiss this king. Why? Because if you don't, there is anger and you will perish in the way. Listen, there's no rebellion against Jesus Christ that doesn't end in death. There's no resisting God's kingdom in and through Jesus Christ such that you have any hope that you will reach the end of your days and try to get into heaven and blessedness some other way. He says, kiss the son. So, so what's another way we can think of this? What is the right response? It's repentance. Kissing the son is the ultimate act of repentance. Because you're saying, I acknowledge I was wrong to rebel. And now I'm pledging myself to you. So your option is to rest in the son. Put your faith in him. Repent from your sins and your rebellion. Or face his wrath. A lot of times we think of the father as the one that's wrathful. The father is the one who's angry at sin. The father is the one. No, no, no. Understand if Christ is king and you rebel against him, his wrath is kindled against you. Not just the fathers. Jesus has wrath and anger towards your rebellion. But what does the psalm end with? It ends with this invitation for those of us who have not rebelled. And it ends with an invitation for those who have. It's one and the same. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. If we could summarize verses 10 through 12 in New Testament terms. The message is repent or perish. Where have we heard that before? Oh, right, Matthew, that we've just walked through. Repent or perish. The call at the end of this psalm tells us that resistance leads to death, repentance to life. So resisting Christ is not your hope. Resting in Him, having refuge in Him is your hope. So what was the big idea this morning? Although there are those who despise God's King... Christ will rule all, and we are called to rest in Him. But we can't stop here. We can't stop here because there's more to this story. Today is Palm Sunday, and it's the day that we remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt. And as He's going in, 
There are shouts of Hosanna and blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He's proclaimed to be the long-awaited king. But he's portrayed as a gentle king. We might even say as a meek king. But what the world fails to understand is that even though Jesus came as a meek king, that does not mean he came as a weak king. Jesus comes to destroy sin, death, and darkness. But in the following days, Jesus doesn't head straight for Zion's hill, does he? That hill that's rightfully his. That hill that God has set him on. No, he, there's another hill that he has to stop at. That's on his itinerary. And it's the hill of Calvary. You see, before Christ is set on Zion's hill, he's lifted up on Calvary's. It's not just darkness and evil out there that needs to be conquered. It's the darkness and evil in our own hearts that Christ must defeat. It was my darkness and sin. It was your darkness and sin, as well as the forces of darkness and evil. It's not one or the other. Jesus goes to the cross to take the penalty for our sins, to bear the wrath that our sins deserve, and to exhaust the judgment of God towards us who are sinners. But it's also to conquer evil. That's what Paul says in Colossians 2. Verses 13 and 15, he says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's the personal part. Paul says he, this, he set aside this record by nailing it to the cross. So there's Jesus conquering our sin, our rebellion. But then Paul goes on to say, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Jesus conquers death by dying. He conquers sin by allowing Sin to be placed on him and bearing the penalty for it. He conquers darkness by letting darkness have its way. And yet, he rises again on the third day. You see, in the end, the same invitation is given to us that's given in Psalm 2. Each one of us this morning is invited to come, trust and rest in God's anointed king. As one writer puts it, writing on Palm Sunday, he says, Now to the gate of my Jerusalem, the seething holy city of my heart, the Savior comes, but will I welcome him? Will you welcome him? Have you welcomed him? Or have you only welcomed him as the king of Zion's hill and not the king of Calvary's hill? What was it? Remind me. What was written on the wood that was attached to the cross above Jesus? This is the king of the Jews. 
maybe you're here this morning and you need to be reminded after everything that's gone on in the world that Christ is king. And you need to rest in that. Not only king of, of all the earth and will be over all creation, but that he's also the king that laid down your life for you. Maybe you're more focused on the evil out there and you, you worry. Rest in Christ. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're more concerned about the evil in here. Rest in King Jesus crucified on Calvary's hill. The choice is yours. Resist or rest. This morning, our time of response is going to be taking the Lord's Supper together. And this is a time where I want you to remember that it's not so much, although it is a part of it, it's not so much about making yourself right with God as it is being reminded of the promise that Jesus Christ has made to you. So as we take the elements, receive them and receive what Jesus promises in faith, that he promised, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood of the new covenant. And let us receive that in faith, understanding that Jesus has promised to save his people, and he has. Jesus has promised that one day all things will be made right, and it will be. So as we come to a time, yes, examine your heart, but also remind your soul that taking the Lord's Supper is being reminded by Jesus himself. I have pledged myself to save you, to deliver you. Rest in me. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to have a time of prayer. As you pray, you pray to God, ask him uh, for forgiveness for any sins that you need to uh, ask forgiveness for. Make sure that you're trusting Christ as your only Savior. And if you are, and if you feel that you can take the Lord's Supper in good conscience, feel free at that point to come up, take the elements back to your seat, and then we'll take them all together. If you're not a believer, or if there is sin in your life that you have more business to do than time allows this morning, I would invite you to not take the Lord's Supper. Do not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been baptized by immersion, you've been fully gone under, if you feel that you are in good standing with the Lord, feel free to come. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're trusting Him for your salvation, and perhaps at some point in your life, you, you were baptized not by immersion, feel free to come Share the Lord's Supper with us. I, I think that this is something that we share as believers, not just as Baptists. But don't come if there's sin in your life that you need more time to deal with or if you're not a believer. So let me pray for us. You take time, spend time with the Lord to examine your heart, to believe the promises, and then come take the elements to your seat, to your seat when you're ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ the King, Christ our hope, Christ our rest, Christ our, our victory. 
Uh, Lord, as we are getting ready to take the supper, the meal, the bread, and the juice, uh, Lord, that we not only remember what you've done, but we receive what you've done by faith. Lord, be with us in this time. Holy Spirit, move in the way, God, that you desire. In Jesus' name, amen.